Hello and welcome to this Facialism.co.uk podcast with me, Madalina Chobano. At our latest News Reward conference in London last week, we ended the day with a discussion on how the relationship between news organisations and their audiences has evolved, and how publishers are involving their communities more in the editorial process beyond just expecting them to read or share an article once it's finished. In today's episode, we'll be sharing with you some snippets from that conversation, which will hopefully inspire future projects in your own organisation. The Correspondent, The Financial Times and Publish.org are three very different organisations, but what they all share is a commitment to audience participation and to making the most out of the expertise their community, members or subscribers have. They do this by involving readers in the reporting, by inviting them to edit and peer-review stories, and by encouraging fruitful participation in the comment section. Lila Raptopoulos is community editor at DFT, overseeing audience participation, and she kicked off the session by sharing a recent story in which the paper's US chief commentator asked readers to contribute their views on building a fair society in America. Ed Luce, who is our chief U.S. commentator uh, and one of the FT's more esteemed fixtures, ended a recent story with a call to his readers. It was about building a fair society in America. And it said, you know, answers sought by email or Twitter, but in correct English, if you please. And then it sort of ended with his email address, as all do. And the next morning, we got an email from very surprised Ed that, that said, you know, oh my God, readers are actually taking my last line seriously and they're writing me. And I've got, you know, he had hundreds of emails and all these uh, sort of tweets and, and hundreds of comments. You know, we encouraged him to pull together the best and that was the sort of fastest thing that we could do. We published them in a roundup, he spoke to it. And then in his email newsletter, he said, you know, I concluded in my column this week with a plea to readers to email me directly. Oddly enough, I had never done that before. I was so startled by the pleasant tone of the feedback that I must do it again. So it took Ed, you know, a good experience with readers to fully start believing what I've been banging on about for the past few years, uh, which is that your readers aren't just like an anonymous mass of people who are going to give you grief. They're individual people and they all have a ton of knowledge. Lila then went on to outline some of the questions worth asking before getting started with this type of projects. The first one I stole from Terry Paris Jr. of ProPublica, it was, you know, what is the gap in coverage that our readers can help fill? What community already exists and where that can add insight or humanize the story? And what do we want to know from them? The second is, what's the best way to ask and reach relevant readers? You know, is it a survey form via an email newsletter? Is it a prompt at the bottom of a story? Is it a question in a podcast? Uh, where are the people who are going to be able to answer the question that you have and how do you reach them best. Um, three is how will the responses be used, you know, a roundup of excerpts as we did with Ed quickly, if you have more time, you know, as leads for potential interviews uh, to build a network, that sort of thing. And then four is how do we measure success. So here's our second example. This is the morning after Harvey Weinstein's story broke, uh, a very busy morning in a lot of newsrooms. We knew we had a responsibility to find out sort of where and how this was manifesting outside of Hollywood, especially in the industries that we cover. So I'll take you through the questions again. One, you know, the gap in coverage that our readers could help fill was that, you know, it's hard to find these stories if our readers don't know we want to hear them. We wanted them to know we were committed. I was sensitive to the fact that we didn't just kind of want to put an onus on the victims to do this work for us, but I also thought that if people felt more empowered now to speak out, you know, tell their stories, it was important that they knew that we wanted to hear them and report it out. The best way to reach them, uh, we, you know, Laura Noonan, the the correspondent that we worked with on this, uh, wrote a story that we published about the fact that we wanted to hear from readers in finance and other corporate industries. We also sort of asked ourselves what 
like where are these people going to be? So we put a call-out box that looked like that um, at the bottom of every relevant story about harassment in the workplace. We thought about, you know, a lot of these stories were going to come from women. Where are women reading? Specific email newsletters, marketing emails that get sent out with our content, you know, social media, that sort of thing. Third, how will the responses be used? It was basically three buckets, we thought. One is, you know, tips about high-powered people, which would be treated like investigations, so that would be treated in one way. Um, the second is, you know, we got story after story, powerful stories of inappropriate behavior and harassment that sort of together showed a powerful sense of, of what was happening to women across industries. So we got in touch with those individual women and a few men and, and pulled together some of the most powerful into a story that Laura wrote around. The third were trends, so trends that we saw and the sorts of responses we were getting. Um, and then there were stories that Laura could report out around those trends. So one was about workplace technology um, that was being used for harassment. So, you know, Gchat and being able to see each other's calendars and things like that. At the end, it's important, of course, to sort of close the loop, you know, email readers to thank them, um, tell them how the stories contributed to, to your reporting. And then measuring success was, you know, the questions were, was it helpful to Laura in her reporting? Yes. How was the quality of the responses that came in? You know, exceptionally high. Traditionally, how did these stories, how did the stories kind of do on site? Um, they had very, you know, above average page views, high page views, but more importantly to us, really incredibly high time on page. People were really um, spending a lot of time reading these stories. And then, of course, there's the immeasurable impact of the fact that readers are seeing, even if they're not contributing, that, you know, we care what they have to say and uh, we want to hear from them and we think they're integral in our reporting. At The Correspondent, engagement editor Jessica Best said the question is not whether or not a particular story is right for members to be included. The question is, what is the most suitable way to get people involved? One of the things, one of the only good things that the decimation of uh, ad revenue has done, I think, is flip the, how we think about audience. So for a long time, um, because either ad-supported businesses or um, subscription-supported businesses, editorial staff could ignore the audience because they just meant money and editorial staff weren't interested in money. Um, but what either... A, smaller amount of advertising revenue has meant or going ad free like we have is that audiences become much more interesting in the sense of a two-way knowledge exchange um, and that's why we think being ad free is really really key for us and how it relates to our relationship with our audience and we treat our members as curious individuals who actively participate. Here are six ideas and principles the correspondent applies when working with its 60,000 members from journalists not being afraid to admit gaps in knowledge or that they've changed the direction of a story or beat to them spending half of their time at work actually interacting with members. First of these is, is this principle uh, that is the really, this is the basis for everything we do with our audience, which is that my readers know more than I do. The idea that 100 GPs will always know more than one health correspondent. And we're really, really transparent about that. We're not frightened to say what we don't know. And perhaps taking this to the extreme as was an example uh, two years ago where we realised that we didn't actually know anything at all. So when the uh, Brussels airport uh, terrorist attack happened, um, everyone was clamouring to cover this story. Of course, lots of breaking news outlets covered this story. Um, and it was a big concern in the Netherlands, uh, the neighbouring country, and it's something that everyone in Europe was covering. But we realised we really didn't have anything to add to the conversation, but to not say anything at all also felt strange. So uh, our editor-in-chief, Rob Weinberg, sent out an email that said, we will cover this in 100 days when we have something useful to say, but today we won't say anything. 
and we put out no stories on that day. And it was one of the biggest boosters for membership that we've had. People really, really appreciated this idea that, okay, we're going to step back and let this conversation happen elsewhere because we're not going to contribute to that. Um, so our readers always know more than I do, and sometimes none of us know anything, and that's okay, and we can be patient with that. The second principle uh, is really crucial and it, when it comes to our uh, news conferences is this idea of not if but how to include members so we never ask the question is this the right story to include the audience every story is the right story to include the audience it's just a question of what's the method we use to get them involved um, we really build this into the way we work with our correspondents so i think i mentioned this morning that um, 50% of our correspondence time is spent interacting with members. And we also extend this to our freelance contracts. So we don't just pay by word. There's actually a proportion of our agreement with our freelance writers that is based on the fact that they have to interact with audience members. So this is really something that is right at the centre of the way they operate. It's not just about reporting a story. The third thing is the idea of multiplying avenues for participation. So. Um, People may be familiar with the kind of 90-10-1 principle of online interaction, which is that 90% of your audience members will probably engage with you in a very surface level way. They might just read the story and then move on. 10% might decide to engage in a slightly deeper way. Maybe they send it to a friend. Maybe they like it on Facebook. And it's really 1% of your audience that's really, really interested in engaging in a deep way, in scraping data, in proofreading stories like members for the correspondent do. But what we've learned is not to try and shove everyone into that 1% box. It's fine if you want to engage in a much more surface level way, but provide different opportunities for that. Um, so one of the ways we have done this in the past is we have had big data scraping projects. When we wanted to report on the porn industry, um, we put a big appeal out there for people who could come and help us with data scraping on some of the major porn sites. We wanted to have academics in this area who could come and talk to us about uh, sociological research. We wanted to speak to actresses uh, and actors in the industry, um, all sorts of different people. Some of them would just wanted to send us an email and comment their experience. Some of them wanted to come into the office and spend time actually giving an interview. Others wanted to scrape data. Others just wanted to comment on the site. So there's lots of different ways that we kind of try and provide different opportunities for people to be involved. The fourth principle uh, is that engagement is everybody's responsibility at the correspondent. So while I think in some news organizations you have an audience engagement team, we don't have an audience engagement team. It's just something that we all do. So this might be um, our book publisher is responsible for making sure uh, that uh, the campaigns are based uh, around reaching people in an engaging manner. Uh, we have an internal speakers bureau who is responsible for putting all of our correspondents on stages in conferences around the world that are relevant to them um, so they can actually interact face-to-face -face with audiences. Um, of course, there is the correspondence themselves. Um, and we do have people whose roles are slightly more geared to uh, engagement and to audience uh, interaction. We've just recently appointed what we call a conversations editor um, who's solely dedicated to bringing as many people to the conversation on our platform as possible. Um, but this is something that goes from developers through to interns. This is something we all do. Uh, transparency is a priority. This is, again, something we referred to this morning, this idea that uh, we're honest about what we do and what we don't know. 
another way that we do this which encourages interaction is our correspondents are really encouraged to say when they've changed their mind. So um, if they're reporting, because they report on beats, they tend to report for a long time on one particular subject. Um, and if they, for example, we have a progress correspondent, uh, Rip Bregman, he has reported an awful lot on universal basic income. And for a long time, he really staked his claim that this was the right thing to do. And he was known for that. He wrote books for that, about that. He flew around the world talking about how great this was. And about three weeks ago, he had to write a piece to say that actually a lot of the most recent research he'd seen suggests that applying it on a universal basis, he no longer believes that's the right thing. It should be a local thing, which is a big thing to come back and, and admit if it's something that you know, you've spent a lot of time and emotional energy um, really promoting and talking about. Um, but readers love it. They love the, the honesty, and they can then get involved in a discussion as to why have you changed your mind? What is the research that's uh, showing you this? Who are you speaking to? Oh, I've got a piece of research that might make you think another way. Um, so we're not frightened of saying either we got it wrong or we're, we're shifting how we feel. And the last thing is to, is to give opportunities for action. Um, so this is the idea that our journalism doesn't just stop with publication. Um, what can uh, our members or what can we do after that? So these are things uh, like if we're doing, we've done pieces on uh, the debt industry and ethical banking, providing guidelines and help for how to switch uh, to a, a more ethical bank in your area. We've done things on uh, cybersecurity, so uh, not only to help you um, make sure that you can log on to public Wi-Fi networks safely, but also how could you go to your employer and ask them to improve their practices. So we always try and give an opportunity for action as well so that our journalism doesn't just end when you get to the bottom of the page or even when you get to the bottom of the contributions section. The model for Publish.org, a non-profit community interest company that opened in public beta back in November, is based on a previous project the same team worked on, called Contributoria. It was a platform where people could write and publish their stories, but also get funding for their reporting through crowdfunding. Publish.org aims to help independent journalists find a place for their stories, an audience, editorial guidance and clarity about payment. Members of the platform can get involved in peer-reviewing the stories published on the site, and each article also includes transparent information about how many times it has been edited and how, as well as which sources have been used explained editorial director Sarah Hartley. We're now at the stage where we're in beta and we have um, writers working on the site and we've got a pretty simple kind of aim really to what we're trying to do. We wanted to create a platform where journalists could come and they could self-publish in the same way that you might do on Medium or blog posts or that sort of thing, but for journalism, not kind of for what I had for breakfast and seven secrets of my success, not that sort of thing. Um, and then we uh, also wanted to make sure journalists could get paid for their work. So we had to have a way where people could pitch, people get paid, everybody's happy. It was important to us with Contributoria, and it's something that's very important to us now, to have a way that content can be reviewed by the members. Um, we've come up with this uh, little panel there, you see at the bottom of the articles in yellow, where people can say, you know, is, is this a good article, basically? We took sort of five indicators of what we think is quality um, based on some academic research that's uh, come out of France uh, that you may have seen from Frédéric Fallou, who writes the Monday Note. So we took five of those indicators, put them at the bottom so that people could interact with it, and obviously we needed a way that our articles could be published online, um, but we also found from doing Contributoria that people are very much 
enjoyed long form even on mobile. So we've stuck with long form. We're looking at in-depth things uh, like the correspondent. We're not into the sort of daily news grind. We're looking at issues rather than, and, uh, and you know sort of uh, approaches rather than the the daily news. The reason we believe that this transparency thing is so important is because it brings back some trust into the output. We put on every article how something was made, so how many times it's been reviewed, you can see the reviews, you can see the edits, you can see the sources, you can question the sources, you can do all those things. And um, within our members, what we're looking for is a kind of point system. Any of you that uh, are familiar with some of the tech platforms, they work on a sort of reputational basis, so that if somebody is a very useful community member, they get better accesses to things. So we're working on that sort of approach so that all the members can be really engaged in the journalism process. So how can members of publish.org currently get involved with the platform? We put two commissions up. Uh, we asked people to pitch to journalism as a democratic tool and insights into modern slavery. We got three pitches and we commissioned all three. You can see them on the site there. Um, it was interesting that uh, they were from far and wide. But now we have a way that, now we're in beta, you don't have to have an invite and you can just log in and join. But we offered two more commissions, well, three more commissions. Two have been completed. Democracy, just a really broad open one. Also, uh, like our previous speakers, we wanted to do something more in the European Union that wasn't Brexit um, and wasn't sort of the toing and froing of the politics, but looks at what the European might mean in the future. And then we also had an investigation into lotteries worldwide, so lottery-type games, uh, national lotteries, things like that. And we've ended up with um, the European stories. I was very pleased that the new European editor, Matt Kelly, got involved, as well as uh, a Dutch journalist and professor, Bart Browse, who's quite well known. And they looked at all the pitches that came in and helped us review them. We had 13 pitches, seven were commissioned, um, they really cover everything um, about the European Union, things that are perhaps quite surprising because it's not just coming from a UK perspective. So with things on cybercrime, we've had things on banking, how entrepreneurs can help reinvent Europe, all sorts of topics. And the lottery initiative, which is still ongoing, we joined with another journalism initiative, Gaming the Lottery, um, that's involved 40 people, 10 countries. We commissioned four pieces, and the first one from Bolivia has been uh, published this week, and obviously another three to come this month. So how has it been seen? Well, we've, we've had nice reaction from our users, and we've also had some nice pieces in the trade press. Um, we'd, we've sort of been tagged the Internet's open news desk. We like this. This is good. We want to be a, a provider of all the services you'd get if you had a news desk. But obviously freelance journalists don't get the benefit of a lot of the things that are provided by a news desk. Not just copy review and things, but actually all the support services. So as we go forward, that's the direction we're going in. That's it for this week. But if you'd like to catch up on the coverage from the event, check out newsyourwire.com, where audio from the sessions and slides from speakers will also be available by the end of the week. Also, don't forget to save the date for our next event, which will take place on the 11th of July at Reuters in London. We'll start working on the agenda soon and announcing topics, so if you'd like to suggest any speakers or topics for discussion, tweet us at Journalism News or get in touch via email. Thanks for listening to this journalism.co.uk podcast.